Whiskey for the Ages is not sponsored or endorsed for any product or program mentioned in this show and receive no remuneration from their creators. Welcome back to Whiskey for the Ages. I'm your host, Brian Dawson, and tonight both Hannah and Alora are with me. Hello, Hannah here. Hi guys, it's Alora. It's great having you both here tonight. I've prepared a new history adventure for us. Tonight we're going to go way back in history. Oh, how far back? How about the late 18th century? Well, now hold on. Didn't we already cover that in one of our episodes? Well, yes, we did uh, a history lesson last season, but it was more about whiskey origins. This time, I'm going to touch on several legal events where whiskey and its production helped shape our nation. So kind of the scandal type situations. Legality and scandal are synonymous. This should be interesting. Yes, and taxation. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess before we start that, though, I want to know what we're all what we've all poured tonight well, Laura, what'd you put in your glass well <laughs> hannah recommended that i try the elijah craig 18 year she wants to know how i think about it and i don't think i've tried this one so no we'll see it's one of the rare ones that we have and i thought being an 18 year old it's kind of historical almost oh so, so good was, idea that was my thought i went with booker's kentucky tea i really didn't have a set reason i just knew i wanted a booker's of really any batch this was the first one that called out to me tonight i picked it mostly because whenever you buy a booker's product it always has a little history lesson story on the card and i thought that that was kind of appropriate for our history episode tonight. And I poured the last of a Stag Junior Batch 11. <sighs> so we've got some high proof. Laura's is 90. I'm not certain what mine is, but let's just say 130-ish. And Hannah's is probably around that 128, 130-ish as yeah. well. But definitely heavy hitters, all three. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's get started then, shouldn't we? Yep. So in the late 18th century, our young nation faced significant debt. Cost estimates of the Revolutionary War were around $80 million. Now, was that $80 million at the time, or was that what it equates to today? Good question. It's $80 million at the time. Wow. Um, we, That's not good. <laughs> no. We needed to do something to take care of this debt. Now... That debt was to outfit, support, and fight the actual war. We owed both domestic and foreign entities. Mm -hmm. Foreign funding came from France. In fact, it's said that nearly half of all of the funding was done by France. That's not surprising. No, France, it isn't. France and England have had a fun history. <laughs> and we were kind of allies with them. It, I mean, the English and the French had a war before our Revolutionary War. Yep. and the French and Indian War. Yep, and England was super in debt. So when France knew that um, the colonies were wanting to wage war against England, they were like, oh, let's wipe them off the map and basically just screw them all. <laughs> And it wasn't just money that France helped out with. It was also manpower as well. Hmm. The Netherlands also provided loans to help support the cause. 
individual citizens here in the United States also helped finance the war. There was this guy that maybe somebody's heard about, uh, John Hancock. <laughs> he was a prominent merchant and statesman, obviously Declaration of Independence signer. The big signature. Yep. That's where we get the, put your John Hancock right here. Yep. Kind of. He contributed same. both financially and he supported in the military operations as well. There were several other merchants and philanthropists and wealthy bankers and immigrants and businessmen who provided funds, secured loans, and also reached into their own pockets and paid. Individual states also accumulated debts. Some of the states sold war bonds to help with the funding. So enter the new country. We're here in the late 1780s, 1790s, early 1790s. And Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton proposed several methods to address foreign and domestic debt. First thing he wanted to do was consolidate the debt. By consolidating the debt, instead of having multiple payments to lots of people, he's consolidated so he could make small manageable payments back. He also refinanced many of the multiple debts. In order to refinance, he extended them out over longer periods of time. He also proposed taxation measures for revolutionary war costs. He needed to generate some revenue. So the first one he did was tariffs. He put tariffs on imported goods coming from other countries. They were all collected at ports of entry. He put customs duties on goods transported between states. Then again, we had uh, the federal government with all of this land that, frankly, we stole from the indigenous peoples. The federal government started selling lands in the Western territories to settlers and speculators. They also tried some direct taxation on property, land, and income. Although those didn't seem to go over as big and they weren't consistently applied. However, most of the taxation schemes were widely accepted. Hamilton also suggested taxation on whiskey production and sales. He believed whiskey should be taxed, and he felt taxes on whiskey would be a means to assert federal authority on businesses. So did he only apply that to whiskey, or did that extend to any other spirit? Did Most that go to of it beer was whiskey. Okay. Most of it was whiskey, but it was some on beer. And it was some on rum because they were getting sugarcane out of the Caribbean. Right. And mm -hmm. he would be able to apply that. But whiskey production from the previous episode that we talked about was pretty well accepted all over the entire country. Many, many states had whiskey production. Other whiskey excise tax supporters were, of course, George Washington. He supported Hamilton's economic policies. He believed in the importance of federal authority. Vice President John Adams, he was a federalist. He believed in strong central government. He supported Hamilton's economic policies. James Wilson, he was a constitutional convention delegate. He was also a prominent lawyer and a Declaration of Independence signer and legal expert, he helped establish the powers for taxation and authority. Hmm. At that time, there were lots of Federalists in Congress. Federalists all believed in a centralized government. They supported taxation. They wanted as much money as they could get. They were an old political party that we don't use anymore Absolutely. or identify with anymore. Absolutely. There were some opponents of the excise tax as well. Some you may have heard of. How about... Thomas Jefferson. He was critical of the tax. He argued that taxes placed heavier burdens on farmers and frontiersmen compared to commercial producers. He also believed that taxation hindered the development of the frontier. Now you think about that, he was all for exploration. And anything that hindered development, he just didn't believe in. But he also had a broader philosophical stance. He was against centralized federal power. Yeah. He believed in limited government and the imposition of taxes. Putting more emphasis on 
letting the states run themselves mm -hmm. how the states saw fit. I think that that was like an anti-federalist. Is that the term for it? I or? can't remember what there is a term. Yeah, they yeah. had their own political party. I don't recall off the top of my head what their political party was called. And then there was James Madison, who was a constitutional author, and he became the fourth U.S. president. His views were very similar to Jefferson's. He struggled with the long-term taxation policy ramifications. He felt that it could undermine economic and social stability. He also feared economic hardships and felt it would lead to unrest. So these guys, are they critical of all of the taxes that Alexander Hamilton is yes. proposing, or is it just this whiskey tax? Yes, taxes were a huge thing because... England taxed the hell out of the colonies. So they were really, really wary of taxes to begin with because the Federalists were saying, um, guys, we need taxes in order to support us continuing to be a country of some sorts. And the anti-Federalists, like Jefferson, like Madison, were saying, no, this is going to go right back to a monarchy. I mean, this kind of worry kind of continued, like, 20 years at least after the Revolutionary War. I think in a lot of ways it's still pretty yeah. prevalent today. We just have different terms. Yeah, Absolutely. pretty much. I did just look up what the opposition to federalism was. And Laura, you were right. It is just anti-federalism. Well, I took a push like seven years ago. <laughs> but great. Like here, here I really was thinking that it was a uh, a more generalized term, because I was like, it's not going to be anti-federalist. Like, come on. They would have come up with a name besides anti-federalism. That's the best one I could find. Yeah. Well, Keep, I'm proud of myself. And you should be. <laughs> Whiskey tax collection was set up by Washington and his staff. Washington deployed federal officials to collect whiskey taxes. Washington considered federal authority essential in the young nation. The excise tax on whiskey was systematically collected. Distillers were required to first obtain a license to distill. And then once they had a license, they were to pay taxes on each gallon of whiskey they produced. That sounds similar to today. Yeah, yeah. Federal government appointed tax collectors to visit the distilleries, collect the taxes, and ensure whiskey tax law was in compliance. Enforcement was done through legal actions. First, if they didn't pay their appropriate taxes, they paid their fines. And then if they were really obstinate about it, they could be in prison. Tax collection was challenging in remote areas, mm -hmm. one could certainly expect. If you're out in western Pennsylvania, it'd be hard to enforce anything. And in fact, western Pennsylvania was where the resistance to taxation was the strongest. Farmers and distillers protested the unfair taxation. James Madison, as I said earlier, sympathized with the protesters. He also advocated consistently for revising tax laws, and tensions eventually led to the Whiskey Rebellion in 1791. Key players in the Whiskey Rebellion were Major James McFarland, he was a Revolutionary War hero who settled in uh, Western Pennsylvania. David Bradford, who was a lawyer and Deputy Attorney General for Washington County, Pennsylvania. They were both big leaders in the rebellion. They organized and led rebels against the excise tax. They rallied local farmers, distillers, and frontiersmen. They actively engaged in the uprising by taking part in planning and execution of various acts against the collectors and uh, other taxation authorities. Bradford was such a vocal critic of taxation policies, he was eventually accused of treason. <laughs> wow. And he fled Dang. the area to avoid arrest and trial. Where'd he go? He just kind of hid out outside of the area where activity was going on. That's fair. There was okay. a guy named Philip Vogel. He actually engaged in acts of defiance against tax collectors and federal authorities. Another guy, Hugh Henry Breckenridge, an attorney and judge in Western Pennsylvania, 
used his position and influence in tax opposition. He criticized the tax as unjust and detrimental and provided legal weight against the taxation policy. So what could he really do? Though? My I guess mean, if as an attorney he would stand behind those accused and as a judge he could dismiss cases. But if he's going corrupt. up against the United States government, well, whoever, whichever party is in charge at the highest level... I mean, you could run that all the way up to the Supreme Court. And you probably could. But they didn't have the Supreme Court back yes, then. Yes, they did. They well, would have had to. Yeah, they oh. they, they said, did. Okay. It just didn't get that far. There was William Finley. He was a Pennsylvania state legislator. He sought alternative ways for revenue generation, and he vocalized his opposition to the whiskey tax as well. He actively supported tax law repeal and revision. And then there was a guy, Albert Gallatin, Western Pennsylvania U.S. congressman and later senator. He voiced opposition in Washington. He sought peaceful resolutions to the tax conflict. He advocated for repeal and modification of tax laws. And he was a voice of reason. He went on to become a prominent political figure in early U.S. history. He was U.S. Secretary of the Treasury. He was a U.S. Minister to France and a U.S. Minister to the United Kingdom before retiring. Hmm. Mifflin County, Western Pennsylvania, in 1794, had the most significant rebellion against tax collectors and governments. Vogel, I mentioned earlier, caused the resistance to escalate into violence. Mm -hmm. There was tax on tax collectors themselves, burning of homes of tax collectors and government authorities, and so on. Washington couldn't have any of that, so President uh, sent in federal troops to uphold federal laws. And once the troops were sent in, opposition leaders kind of disbanded, and uh, the rebellion ended without further incident. Once it did end, Washington sought to uh, bring everybody back into the fold, and he later pardoned individuals involved as, and set the precedent, frankly, for pardoning citizens on his last day of office to promote reconciliation. He uh, pardoned Major uh, James McFarland, a ringleader, David Bradford, the fugitive, Philip Beigel, he was the guy that uh, was in Mifflin County, and he also pardoned many others. Early U.S. history, and we're already fighting taxes. It's how we were born. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. It's been in our blood just since put day a, one. Just put a tea tax on. Then, <laughs> yeah. If it's a beverage, Post. it cannot be taxed. There a stamp go. tax, yeah. quartering, like, yep. yeah. In the aftermath of the rebellion, during the early 19th century, guess what began? Moonshining. <laughs> so naturally, if you didn't want to pay tax and you had the ability to make whiskey, what would you do? you just go off in the hills somewhere where people wouldn't find you. Yep. The illegal distillation and distribution of alcohol. Moonshining became a part of the fabric of rural life in the early 19th century. It contributed to the history of alcohol production and was prevalent throughout most of the United States, particularly in the rural areas in backcountry, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, the Carolinas, and of course in Appalachia and other rural areas. The revenue agents, the revenuers, or the revenue men, as they became called, were tasked with locating and shutting down illegal distilleries and moonshining. And guess what? They're still doing it Yeah, today. I was going to yeah. say, it didn't really work out. Kind yeah. of a sidebar to this. I didn't really do any research on it. It's just something I know. NASCAR, stock car racing, began because of moonshining. Really? The drivers... <laughs> would be driving all the back roads with liquor in their back uh, back oh of their cars. Gosh. And uh, they would race each other. And then on Sundays and, or Saturday nights, they'd all come together and race around oval tracks to see which was the best driver. Wow. <laughs> it's part of the American fabric. During the 1850s and 60s, 
funding of the Civil War was required. Republican-controlled Congress steadily had increased excise taxes on beer mm -hmm. and liquor sales leading up to the Civil War. Steep liquor taxes established during the war remained a hallmark of the Republican Party, that of Lincoln and Johnson and Grant, under the pretense of funding Reconstruction. The whiskey excise tax increased after the Civil War. Whiskey was to be taxed at 70 cents a gallon. So what would that be in today's money? I don't know, but that is a fair question. 70 cents a gallon was probably very steep since they were probably selling gallons of whiskey for two and three dollars. I was just going to ask what yes. the baseline would have been there. Right. Well, frankly, as late as today, a person can go into a liquor store and buy a 750 milliliter bottle for fourteen ninety-five. Yeah. And yeah. there's major taxation on it. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. The whiskey ring distillers paid treasury officials a bribe of around 35 cents a gallon in return for getting stamping so the whiskey was shown as taxes paid. The distillers split the extra money they saved on the unpaid taxes and participating politicians and treasury agents were able to siphon off millions of dollars in bribes and in federal taxes. Oh, Enter the Grant administration. Grant became president in 1869. The Grant administration was quite possibly the most corrupt presidential administration in the history of the United States. That's very interesting because, I don't know, in history classes, we learned about how Ulysses S. Grant was a really, really great general, and it was like, yeah, we want a leader like that because he really helped us in the Civil War, and now we're calling him the most corrupt president. Most of his problems were because he put his friends in positions of authority. And the friends decided to do whatever they felt like doing because they knew Grant was their boss. Never go into business with your friends. <laughs> That's like yeah. the first lesson you learn in uh -oh. entrepreneurship. We're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> there were at least a dozen different scandals in the eight years of his presidency including the largest U.S. government scandal ever uncovered. Known as the Whiskey Ring, it involved hundreds of people, from the lowest to the highest levels of government. The Whiskey Ring, the bribery scandal of the 1870s, really came about because whiskey distillers had been evading paying taxes. Prior to and during the Lincoln administration, Midwest whiskey distillers had created a fund to bribe the treasury agents so they could evade the taxes. Whiskey had been labeled as vinegar or falsely recorded <laughs> at a lower proof. That's genius. I'm sorry. That, that's genius. I'm sure Taylor wasn't too happy. No. He Taylor. He was, Probably. Th th this, is, this is when he's getting really, really upset. Distillers were underpaying the taxes by an estimated $2 million a year. Government officials had pocketed unpaid and diverted other liquor taxes into their own pockets. An investigation begun in 1874 revealed high-level grant administration officials had been conspiring with the distillers all throughout the early 1870s. Hundreds of people ended up getting arrested, including President Grant's IRS supervisor John McDonald <laughs> and his personal secretary, we would know them today as the Secretary of State? Or? Secretary of, of State, yes. Uh, this case, Orville E. Babcock. The origins were essentially designed to raise money for the Republican Party so they could keep these corrupt folks in, in office. In 1869, as I said, Grant appointed his Civil War friend and general, John McDonald. I thought I recognized the name. He was sent to Missouri to oversee the IRS's tax collection operations, specifically over the whiskey. 
1873, the whiskey ring had become a criminal syndicate and it was no longer gathering money for the Republican Party. By the mid-1870s, the cartel was an efficient machine because they were using whiskey distillers and their aggressive tactics to keep treasury agents in line. So it switched, essentially. Now, instead of the government holding all of the power, it's all of the producers that are saying they have got blackmail now. Exactly. And that was starting to happen with other businesses, like the steam engine. Nearly half of the ring worked out of the St. Louis IRS office under General John McDonald. Others operated major cities, including Chicago, Milwaukee, Cincinnati, New Orleans, and Washington. Hmm. Among the conspirators were distillers, of course, politicians, reporters. In fact, (laughs) William McKee owned the St. Louis Globe Democrat. He was widely known for unethical dealings He was accused, tried, and convicted of falsifying the 1870 federal census, making St. Louis bigger than Chicago so they could get more funds for the city. Oh, that's bad. U.S. Treasury workers, obviously General McDonald, led the ring in St. Louis. McDonald was assisted by Grant's private secretary, Orville Babcock, other IRS agents and Treasury clerks, and, it, and then it went all the way down to the uh, storekeepers and shopkeepers actually selling the liquor. So let me guess, though, like Grant kind of hid behind the scenes of all of this, pushed everybody else. He was else. never officially brought to trial for any of it. Oh, Did but he, he plead plead knows. Fifth? Did he plead the fifth? He never pled the fifth. But he knows. He had to know. He knows. I would think. He's in on it. I would think. He's too smart not to know. It was never proven that he took any money. Wasn't he all, like, didn't he have a problem with alcohol? He, he did. You know, so, he was I mean, an alcoholic. here we go. Like, yeah. here's, his, here's his direct. And that came about during the Civil War. Some people say it was because of all of the things he'd seen. Yeah. And it was a way for him to escape. Yeah. Probably not the best quality to have in a president. Probably not. Of a country. But, you know, we well, digress. Who how many struggled with that problem even yep. after. Yeah. Absolutely. Primary causes for the whiskey ring scandal. Well, obviously you have collusion of friends. But the whiskey producers found it was incredibly easy to evade taxes. Because if you could get a government official in your pocket and would readily accept a bribe you didn't have much trouble evading your taxes. Mm. The political connections with Grant appointing people throughout and other people getting uh, power, the ring had connections everywhere. And the corruption went all the way up to Orville Babcock, the private secretary, as I mentioned earlier. The ring began to break up and unravel in June of 1874. President Grant had appointed Benjamin Bristow Secretary of the Treasury in June of that year. He replaced William Richardson, who had to resign because of a different scandal. Oh, good. So he had to get out. Uh, Richardson allegedly had been taking bribes as well as part of the Secretary of the Treasury. (laughs) Bristow was ambitious. He was also a Kentuckian and a reformist. When he learned of the whiskey ring, he worked without the knowledge of the president or the attorney general. He dedicated himself to breaking the scheme and punishing all of those involved. He built a case against the whiskey ring and used secret agents and inside information from people involved and eventually conducted raids on 16 St. Louis distilleries. The distilleries were producing nearly three times the whiskey for which they were being taxed. So to me, all of that sounds like Bristow knew that he had to keep what he was doing under wraps because he'd be shut down if he made it known to his superiors that this was what he was looking into and, and trying to bring people to justice on. 
There were multiple whistleblowers, but the one that is most famous in this, there were two guys, James Gregory and George T. Stagg, who formed a business, Gregory and Stagg, commercial merchants and distillery agents. Stagg had been selling Kentucky whiskey. In fact, at the time he had been working with and for Colonel Taylor. Because of his position, he was involved with distillers and whiskey rectifiers all over St. Louis and other Midwest cities. Some were in the whiskey ring. Instead of collaborating with them, Stagg alerted honest officials in 1874, and his information helped prompt the raids that I'd mentioned earlier. That's probably why, I mean, like, it, it, it makes me happy to know that Stag products and Taylor products are under the same umbrella. They're in the same house because there's that thread of honesty mm-hmm. that really ties them together. In June of 1875, Grant was informed and tried to head off criticism. <laughs> of course. He appointed former U.S. Senator from Missouri, John B. Henderson, as the special prosecutor in the case. Henderson had cast the deciding vote against President Johnson's impeachment. So he had already been known by the general public as someone who was honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Johnson was not a good president. I mean, he was during like the Reconstruction era where everything was screwed up. Everything was screwed up. He was especially bad. <laughs> Henderson and U.S. attorneys began indicting St. Louis ring suspects, including Grant's friend, General John McDonald. Babcock and McDonald coded telegrams were uncovered. McDonald had tried to keep Grant unaware of the situation, giving him code names and so on. (laughs) That sounds like a TV show, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. Evidence implicated Grant's secretary, Orville Babcock. Grant initially accepted the investigation's findings, but later McDonald convinced Grant that he was innocent of everything. I'm sure it took so much convincing. Hmm. One won't know. One will never know. Whiskey ring trials began in Jefferson City, Missouri in October of 1875, and by December, General McDonald had been convicted sentenced to prison, and ordered to pay thousands of dollars in fines. Which I assume would be much more in today's money. Oh, yeah. Probably so. Grant began to become angered by the proceedings. (laughs) Orville Babcock, his friend, had his trial begin in February of 1876. Special Prosecutor Henderson accused Babcock of obstructing justice. He also raised Babcock's role in question about Grant's involvement. Okay. Grant fired Henderson. Well, naturally. It sounds to me like Grant probably hired... This is all speculation. You know, i got to throw that out there, allegedly. So, Grant... This is my guess. Grant hires Henderson on as an act of goodwill to show the public... No, I'm serious about getting to the truth and hoping that Henderson wouldn't actually follow through with the truth. And then Henderson goes, no, I'm going to, I'm going to actually do my job here and go the extra mile and do what I've been tasked to. And naturally Grant would not, would not care for that. That's my guess. That's how I imagine that. I mean, he was corrupt enough. That's quite possible. Very possible. Grant replaced Henderson with James Broadhead and then told his cabinet he intended to testify on behalf of Orville Babcock. He was convinced by his cabinet to not go to court, so Grant gave a sworn deposition in the White House telling all of Babcock's goodwill. Tecumseh Sherman also testified in behalf of Babcock. Wait, Tecumseh? Yeah. Tecumseh, really? Tecumseh Sherman. Uh, Sherman's March to the Sea during yeah, the Civil yeah. War. Wow. All of these guys knew each other. <laughs> With Grant's testimony, and of course the others, the jury found Babcock innocent. 
Babcock was the lone major defendant in the whiskey ring to be acquitted. But public outcry forced Babcock to resign. When the trials ended in 1876, 238 individuals had been indicted. Wow. 110 were convicted. Over $3 million in tax revenues were recovered, and Treasury Secretary Agent resigned. After so he's yes. kind of like, all right, I did, I yep. did it. I've got nothing more to, to say. But even after he had gone after everybody, he still had the illusion of dirt around him. He ran for a presidential office against Harrison and lost mm. because of his involvement. Well, I imagine too. Probably Grant wasn't too happy with him either. Probably and not. Didn't really want him around. Probably not managing this anymore. I do think that it's worth pointing out how, frankly, impressive to me anyway it is. You have this scandal, this seed of corruption that starts circa 1870, 1871. And Even it, before. And it only, well, I mean, that's when you're saying it really yeah. kind of picks up in its heyday with Grant coming into office and whatnot. And it only takes for five years for it to be not only uncovered but resolved and money recovered and everything to me that's really impressive because corruption in my it's something that's very long lasting the roots are deep there so knowing that it was so quickly handled and caught and everything i i think that's really impressive it's interesting you say that because some of the effects on the U.S. economy during the 1870s, obviously the loss of government revenue, mm -hmm. tax evasion scheme resulted in huge financial losses due to the underreported whiskey production and sales, right. upwards of 2 to $3 million per year. Losses impacted public projects and service funding, and the loss of revenue contributed in part to the large recession of the 1870s and 1880s. At the time, it was known as a depression, and then when the depression came along, it was known <laughs> as the long recession. It also had an erosion of public trust. Citizens lost trust and confidence in the government. <laughs> Corrupt government officials had raised integrity concerns, and government transparency was really a serious problem. The corruption within the Treasury Department prompted calls for reforms in many tax collection procedures. But at least those conversations could be had. Absolutely. And the move to transparency started. On March 3rd, 1877, the last full day of President Ulysses Grant, the last full day that he was in office, he granted pardons to the conviction of whiskey ring individuals, Orville Babcock, his friend, General McClernand, uh, one of Babcock's associates, General McDonald, the IRS supervisor, and kingpin of the whiskey ring, and many others. So Similar I thought that, to Washington. Yeah. So I thought, though, that Babcock had been acquitted. He had been, but he he was involved in other scandals. Oh, of course. So, of course. So Good. He, Wonderful. He was just given a pardon. Gotcha. Grant's pardon stirred additional controversy and criticism, and he left office after eight scandal-plagued years fully discredited. I mean, that... It, it was really, only going to get worse. It really just says, do whatever you want, do what I want you to do, you're going to get a pardon anyway. Like, there's, I hold all of that, that's just a power trip. While Grant himself was never implicated, he was the first sitting... American president to, one, appoint and then fire a special prosecutor and testify as a defense witness in a criminal case. Obviously, the scandal had tarnished Grant's reputation. How much he knew is a matter of speculation by historians. I have to believe he knew stuff. He's, he's way too smart. You have, In order to be a general and a good one at that, you got to be smart yeah. and know strategic plans. Mm -hmm. There's no way Ulysses S. Grant would not have known. And we're historians in our own right, 
So we have speculation <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, well. yeah, right being like, the key word. Yeah, there. It, it, we watch documentaries. Yeah, yeah that's really what. We, and and it's just this is the human condition. Yes, you know, we're amateur historians. Yeah. <laughs> I always consider myself a little more than an amateur, but I've never been paid. So. <laughs> no one's asked you to write a book? No one's asked me to write a book. Give a lecture? No. Oh. Well, I'm giving a lecture now. Ah, okay. Ah, okay. The scandal's influence on whiskey production was really never a problem. The scandal didn't affect consumption, as whiskey was the most widely consumed adult beverage of the time. Right. Not beer? Not beer. Whiskey ring scandal prompted reforms and changes. It increased the oversight of many U.S. government departments, including the Department of Treasury. There were stricter auditing processes, transparency in tax collection, prevention of underreporting or record manipulation. There were legal reforms and lots of prosecutions. The process that was held in place by Bristow was followed for many, many years. Many of the convictions set legal precedents. There were stricter penalties for violations. There was improved enforcement and investigations. And specifically, investigations of industries prone to tax evasion, which of course included whiskey production. I've got a quick question though. Did you find anything about Pinkertons? You know, I was just this? wondering Because that. they were... They were a legit detective agency really that kind were. of were really behind the scenes. I mean, they're very aggressive. Oh, oh yeah. I never even thought to look. Oh, but, man. Yeah, but I missed opportunity. Bro. Missed I opportunity. Mean, I, it's something we could cover yeah. sometime in the future. But, I mean, the Pinkertons were one of the biggest prevalent, like, And this private, is during this time. Yeah, private investigator type entities that really use the power of force to get what they wanted but they were efficient <laughs> bloodhounds of enforcement and getting information so i can't help but wonder if they they ever dipped their toes into tax evasion my impression had always been more that they were involved in military and, and, man, and man hunts, man hunts yeah, bounty they, hunters they, things like I that i think there was a line but, that said the pinkertons always get their man yeah yeah something yeah. like that but you never know in addition to the improved enforcement and investigations there was an established whistleblower protection mm -hmm. as whistleblowers had really played the critical role in exposing the corruption and the illegal practices did George T. Stagg and, and the other guy ever come to, like, did they, they get wrapped up in it further than their, their whistle blowing, or? George T. Stagg was brought to court, and he was cross-examined. Okay. And through his cross-examination and his involvement with so many people, his role was called into question, although he was never indicted. Mm. There was a an agent, and I neglected to uh, write his name down, but stood up for his character and said, without Stagg's testimony, this investigation would have ended without any conviction. Right. Or even started. Yeah. Pretty Arguably. cool. Yeah. Pretty cool. Very cool. Well, girls, that's my history lesson. That was really cool. Taxes and scandal. And it was hand only... Hand in hand. Yes. <laughs> and it was only going to get worse after this with like all the monopolies because this is actually before yeah or very near to that because yeah. monopolies i mean after grant you get the forgotten presidents like cleveland harrison harrison i mean you get a whole series of them i think it was between like four to six presidents before well teddy roosevelt yeah came teddy in. roosevelt yeah he came in in the early 1900s yeah and yeah. he was like absolutely not we're going to stop this yeah but then you know it would still ramp up right again with to speaking about whiskey anyway with prohibition oh, yeah. and it's right around the, the corner right around yeah, the corner we're i'm probably sure gonna do a lesson on that one too huh. you can't <laughs> you can't not do a history lesson on the prohibition and all those guys al capone doing all that oh, kind man. of stuff yeah well that's very true so before we do the Fortnite and whiskey, I'm 
like I, I've been eyeing Alora. She's been having her Elijah 18 year. This is the first time she's ever had it. She's sucking it down. I'm not asking you to do a full review here, but like, what what are your thoughts on it? Because I I had thoughts when I when I had that. I wasn't. I mean, I wasn't too keen on the smell. Believe it or not, I was like, this kind of smells a little weird. It doesn't smell like the sweet bourbon that I know, but then I took a sip of it and I was like, okay. Now, okay. Let, let, so on a scale of one to 10, how, how, how would you rate it? Uh, the whole entire bourbon, like smell, taste, and appetite. Everything. Taste. Solid eight and a half to nine. Okay. I really, really like it. Okay. Cause it's got a lot of toasted marshmallow. How much would you pay for it? Um, at the absolute ceiling. At the absolute ceiling, I'd probably pay 60 Dad, would you like to tell how much... I'm scared what, what about the, how what, much what, this is. What, 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 double mean? it. Okay. <laughs> and you're still not there. <laughs> Dang. I'm sorry, guys. No. <laughs> the, the, I'm poor. I'm a college student. I, I, mean, I, I wanted to do that little experiment there because... I mean, it's one of our most expensive yes. bottles that we have in our collection. Yep. Not the most expensive, but it it's pretty high up there. It's pretty high, but yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's like, it's good. It's, I mean, but I can go for other things. Is that it $100 I, good? Believe it or not, no. Not for me. She I says, think, believe it or not, no, everybody, in, yeah. in a very whispery tone. Because I feel like I'm going to start something. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, 18 year, well, when you put those words, it's like, oh, well, it's it has to be good. It has to be good. Well, y'all have to understand, I'm really picky. And I, I just know that there are other bourbons that I'd be like, this is so much better. I mean, now I'm not saying this is a bad bourbon by any means. I'm like 60 bucks for me is really, really high. Yeah. That's a really high number for me. Mm. Is it better than Old Forester 1920? No. That's a $60 no. bourbon. There you go. I mean, like, the, <laughs> Old Forester is one of my favorites. So I think, like, the whole point of me suggesting that you have that one. You knew the name of what it was you were drinking, but beyond that, you were really tasting it blind. Not yeah. like like you only knew the name. You didn't know the price. I don't think you really know the proof. It doesn't feel like a high proof. I mean, no, you guys are not. saying that it's, it's a ninety. I'll believe ninety. Yeah, yeah. So it was as blind as you were gonna get, knowing the name. And I was just curious. But anyway, I just had to know. Yep. I had to know. I had to I opened that. Know. I opened that bottle in September while I was doing the 30 bourbons in 30 days. Yeah. And frankly, I was underwhelmed. You had some as well. I, I Yeah. And it hurt on a very profound level, but not an unexpected level because... The bottle, 150 I, I, I'll, I'll talk value all day, every day. What's a $150 bottle supposed to taste like? Better than that. I'm yes. sorry. Yes. It's just better than that. I mean, but I it's know still of, good. I know of, like, probably pronouncing it wrong or saying it wrong, the BRT 101. The BRT that you had the other night. BRT from model. Maker's Mark. From Maker's Mark. Yeah. That is a hundred fifty dollars. <laughs> really? Yeah. I don't I let that one. Don't, don't let, let them make, know. Don't let Maker's Mark know that. Okay, we have to keep that but, kind yeah, of thing. Because that's only a eighty dollar. Yeah, I know, but it is a firework of a bourbon. I mean, yeah. I'm able to get sweet notes. I'm able to get nuts. I'm able to get a strong flavor that's not going to hurt me too bad. I think that was the BEP you had the other mm -hmm. night. Yeah, but yeah. I did a review on BRT. I yeah. did a, I did oh, a review on a, it. A while back. Yeah. And yeah. I remember attaching the songs of um, like uh, Unstoppable by the Score and then 
The Last Moment of uh, Dvorak's New World Symphony because they're such powerful songs. You feel like an absolute boss when you listen to those songs. And that bourbon was a boss. This? No. Sorry. <laughs> my, my, my Maker's Mark cast strength setting is a boardroom. I find it funny that you say that that other Maker's Mark is a boss because I've also equated Maker's Mark products to executive affluence. <laughs> Corruption. Co corruption. <laughs> tie it all in one start tie it all together. Anyway. Let's jump right into Fortnite and whiskey. My first story tonight, and this one came down one day after our last podcast was recorded. That was the family apart but together episode where I had mentioned uh, the pending EU tariff on American whiskey. This story, European Union agrees to delay the 50% tariff on American whiskey, as I said, came down one day after that podcast was recorded. American distillers through the Christmas holidays had to be ringing seasonal bells of joy. <laughs> <laughs> the 50% European Union tariff on American whiskey was delayed and has been delayed until March 31st, 2025. The retaliatory tariffs on American whiskey were set to jump 50% on January 1st, and that would have been a major blow to the U.S. spirits industry. According to Kentucky Distillers Association, the KDA, the U.S. and EU exporters enjoyed duty-free access to each other's markets for the past two decades. Both have benefited, as have consumers. The trade dispute that provoked the tariffs were not about bourbon or American whiskey at all. They were about the aluminum and steel we were getting from Europe. Consequently, Europe put taxation on American whiskey. So back and forth it kept kicking to where this entity that had nothing to do with aluminum and steel was getting taxed, the tariffs if you will. The KDA strongly has urged the EU and U.S. officials to end this silly tariff and separate it from the aluminum and steel. Whiskey requires years of aging. If you don't know what's going to happen eight years from now, how are you supposed to put together a marketing plan to sell to other entities? Mm -hmm. It's the same way for scotch. Yeah. In some cases, they've got barrels that are aging 25 years. So if they can have a, a long plan, that'll certainly help. Per the KDA, we appreciate and applaud the efforts of the Biden administration and Kentucky Governor Andy Brashear. They secured the extended tariff suspension and we look forward to free trade. The Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, DISCUS, also put out a statement. We greatly appreciate the Biden administration's efforts to secure an extended suspension of the EU's American whiskey tariffs. Until the threat of the tariff is fully removed, uncertainty will continue to restrict the American whiskey and export growth. A little background here, the US-EU tariff dispute. Due to the imposition of the retaliatory tariffs, American whiskey exports to the EU plunged 20% from 552 million to 440 million in 2021 when the tariff was put in place. American whiskey rebounds after the removal of the tariffs in 2022. American whiskey exports increased 29% in 2022. Sales reached 566 million that year, surpassing the pre-tariff tax levels of 518 million. So tariffs, not good. <laughs> what that is, sounds like the, the beginning of the podcast. Tariffs, not good. <laughs> we, we don't like tariffs. We still don't like. Yeah. Tariffs, not good. We yeah. still don't like tariffs. Yeah. 
What does it mean American distillers will continue exporting American bourbon, rye, and American single malt in huge quantities to the EU? Who is definitely appreciative of all of those Absolutely. to them imports. They, yeah, they like they our are. product. They like our product a lot. Keeping in line with our theme, Kentucky distillers paid a record $50 million in barrel tax last year. The number of barrels aging in Kentucky has reached a new milestone. Now, they do this roughly one year in, in, in arrears. 12.6 million barrels were aging as of the end of January 2023. The Kentucky Distillers Association, again the KDA, said producers paid $50 million in barrel taxes. It's a record rise of over 30% compared to 2022. The 2023 taxes on Kentucky barrels has skyrocketed. The KDA noted distillers are held back by historically high production costs due to inflation, increased production costs, double-digit hikes in grain, cooperage, and labor. Barrel taxes have increased by 122% over the past five years. Holy cow. Since 2010, barrel taxes have gone up 315%. Kentucky is the only place in the world where taxes on aging barrels of spirit is applied. Studies found distillers are leaving the state to distill and age in other non-tax locations. KDA President Eric Gregory noted Kentucky's family of distillers made the argument in Kentucky government disaster was looming for the Kentucky industry. If elected officials didn't do something to rein in the ever-growing barrel tax, Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear and the General Assembly eventually found a compromise to fix the tax while protecting the communities. I think we talked about this in a previous news story that Kentucky's General Assembly passed House Bill 5. The state is going to gradually remove the tax over the next 20 years while still protecting funding for schools, fire departments, emergency services, and so on. This, they're not getting rid of those funds. No, they've those got to. Those funds are needed. Yeah, like, they're just really gonna, bad. They're, they, they're just going to be getting them from somewhere else. Hmm. Over the next 20 years, it also gives local governments to figure out where the money is going to come from. Yeah. Uh, this year's barrel report mm. proves their work was necessary. And lastly, Buffalo Trace is in the news again, this time with Chris Stapleton Whiskey. Well, I know that name. Oh. Chris Stapleton, you know, the guy who... Uh, he does like the Tennessee cover whiskey. of Tennessee Whiskey. Yeah. He actually does a very good job on it. He's got a really good voice. He yeah. does. This past fall, Buffalo Trace Distillery announced its next whiskey would be Traveler Whiskey. It's not labeled as a bourbon. It's going to be bottled at 90 proof, and it's a blend developed by Buffalo Trace Master Distiller Harlan Wheatley and Kentucky native Chris Stapleton. They tested more than 50 different recipes, settling on a blend number 40. Buffalo Trace officially rolled out Traveler on January 4th. Oh, so it's really new. Traveler is also available through online sellers at the MSRP on the bottles of $39.99. That's pretty reasonable. It's very yeah, reasonable. The, the, like Buffalo I'm Trace, okay with that. Buffalo Trace does a pretty good job at keeping all of their prices reasonable. Secondary markets are where right, right, comes that, that right, but them as an entity they do pretty well and to know that they have a celebrity endorsement a celebrity product here and they're still keeping it in that affordable range of 40 bucks msrp that that's, that's pretty cool. good that's cool yep early reports the nose traveler has a bourbon nose with vanilla some caramel corn oak and a hint of spice on the palate it's fairly sweet with hints of toffee and vanilla and on the finish Whiskey is tame on the tongue with a little bit of a spicy finish. That sounds like my kind of bourbon, honestly. Of course, these are what somebody wrote down. Right. You and, have to you taste know, it yourself. And I got to, like, 
plug my ears. Blah, 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 blah. I don't. Don't give me your spoilers. Don't give me your 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 book jacket synopsis of what you've got. I'll probably disagree. <laughs> so, girls, as you noted, is it as smooth as Tennessee whiskey? <laughs> You'll have to find a bottle and find out yourself, and then let us know when you do. Yeah, we probably won't see it up here. In yeah. my opinion, and again, this is just mine, celebrity collaborations, <laughs> oh, hum. But with Buffalo Trace, remember, it was just recently we talked Buffalo Trace partnering with Wrangler, and Stapleton recently partnered with Filson, a clothing and gear provider. Hmm. Some celebrity endorsements are from individuals who really, really care about the product yeah. and actually want to spend a lot of time doing it. Uh, Matthew McConaughey comes to mind. He's been really involved with all things wild turkey. Ryan Reynolds is uh, really keen with the gin as yeah, well. Yeah, the, uh, the aviation gin. Uh, George Clooney is really big into his Casamigos line. That's, te that's tequila. So there are a few. And The Rock. And The Rock with Terramana. That one's a very... <clears throat> popular one of the best value tequila ones that people put out there so there are some celebrity products that i think are worth a look but i do agree that as a whole i'm not overwhelmed impressed or overly even intrigued by oh there's a name on here that i kind of maybe recognize and there's a lot. I'm not gonna. I'm I'm, I'm gonna keep my my. Well, it's just kind of like jumping on a bandwagon. If you are in a, if you're in a college English course, one of the main things you learn about is fallacies. And one of the key examples of one of the fallacies is following a celebrity, who mm -hmm. has a marketing design. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's great. Doesn't mean that it's not bad. Approach it with caution. And know that it's subjective. I think it's really... Like, keep an open mind about yeah. how you're going to interpret it. And part of the price tag is coming from that name. Yeah. As always, links to those above stories, as well as many others, are going to be posted on our website. That's just whiskeyfortheages.com. You all know that already. Under our Whiskey for the Ages podcast tab. And that is our show. So thank you so much for listening. We are coming up on the last episode of our season... And we're going to be taking a break after that last episode. Just like last season, we are going to be having a listener's pick. Now, we talked about this. We've talked about it, honestly, all season because it's something we all really look forward to. Uh, talked about it a little bit more in depth last episode that these were going to be some of our unicorns that we were going to put forth. And you guys were going to have the ability to choose for us which one we would open for the first time and review for all of you to be posted on air so we wanted to give you the lineup these are the things that you're going to want to be looking for across our social media to be voting on first up we have our heaven hill heritage collection this is a 17 year old it is barrel proof it is a bourbon it sits at 118.2 proof that's 59.1 percent if you're an abv fan uh, we have a Joseph Magnus Straight Bourbon. This is finished in sherry and cognac cask. It is also a bourbon um, sourced from Indiana. Finishing casks are Oloroso Sherry, Pedro Jimenez, and cognac. It sits at 100 proof, 50% ABV. We have a Knob Creek 15-year straight bourbon. Obviously category bourbon there. And it is also 100 proof, slash 50% ABV. We have Little Book. Chapter 7, in retrospect, is the particular chapter name. This is a blended American. It comes from Kentucky. It sits at 118.1 proof, so a little bit higher there. It also was ranked number 4 uh, for Whiskey of the Year 2023 by Whiskey Advocate. So, intriguing there. And then last up, we have Parker's Heritage Collection. This is the 2018, so yes, maybe a little bit old, but it's been sitting with us for a while. Our orange Curacao finished. It is still mm. bourbon, uh, 110 proof, 
55% ABV. You guys may recall from season one, I did an expose on Heaven Hill Distillery. Parker's Heritage is a derivative of that and all of the funds from, or not all of the funds, but a percentage of the profits from Parker's Heritage Collections go to ALS Research. So very cool there. Wanted to include it again in this season, offering it up uh, for a potential review. Watch for and make selection on one of our surveys. I'll be putting up surveys or will be putting up surveys on our Facebook page, Whiskey for the Ages, our LinkedIn page, Whiskey for the Ages, and in various LinkedIn whiskey groups. The tentative episode upload for our year-end whiskey review will be around Thursday, January 25th. Folks, this has been a great, great show we had some laughs that you didn't get to hear. Uh, I made it funny, and the, the <laughs> girls gave me heck about it. We had a lot of outtakes on this one, everybody. Yep. <laughs> Non-bourbon induced. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Genuine outtakes. Sometimes my lips don't say what my brain is trying to convey. It just goes too fast. <laughs> so I'm sitting here with quite a bit in my glass. I hope it rings well. <laughs> but as we end every episode, we'll say cheers, everybody, and move on to our next operation. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.